Welcome back to Mama Mystery. I am your host, Kelly. And I am your co-host, Austin. And today we are going to be... (coughs) You're kidding. (coughs) Water went down the wrong pipe. Okay, well, now that you're fine, we're going to move on with today's episode. Apologize. Are you ready? Yes. Okay, so today we've got some huge updates in the case of the four college students who were murdered in the early morning hours of November 13th, 2022. We've been covering this case for quite a while now. I'm relieved to share that there has finally been an arrest in the murders of Zana Kernodal, her boyfriend, Ethan Chapin, Maddie Mogan, and Kaylee Gonzalez. So what I'm going to do with today's episode, the arrest affidavit has been released. So we are going to discuss it first. And then after we're done discussing it, I'm going to read the the affidavit word for word because I put a poll up. Some of you were interested in that. So... If you were one of the people who voted yes, you want to hear the affidavit word for word, you can skip ahead if you're interested to minute 42. So today's episode is going to be a little bit different because usually what I do is I write an entire script that I read from and then Austin gives his, uh, you know, his commentary. Natural feedback of not knowing anything. (laughs) Right. But I don't have that today because I really wanted to get ahead of the affidavit as it came out. It came out this morning. um, And, you know, Idaho is obviously Pacific time. We're central time. So it came out later in our day than, you know, than I would have expected, I guess. So anyway, I created a quick summary. I posted some videos on Instagram and on TikTok. um, And so that's kind of what we're going to go off of today. And, And my knowledge right now, obviously, I heard the case. And I know mm-hmm. that there's been this strange dude arrested, mm-hmm. and um, he has the background with the the. Let me know how you would respond to a crime. Yes, so which is super weird. And then I know that the affidavit came out, but I know nothing. Kelly's about to tell us. Yeah, so let's talk about that really quick. So Brian Koberger, um, he was studying criminology at Washington oh. State University and criminal justice. Has a doctorate. There's that Facebook rumor. Yes. So is that we, a rumor or true? Well, we're going to discuss it. I think we kind of talked a little bit about it in our last episode. We, well, we talked about um, there being a group, but I don't think that this information about him being undercover within that group possibly was was in that episode. So we talked about this a li- We kind of touched on it in the beginning of the episode that we just released on Sandra Cantu. Um, and you can listen to that even if you're not a Patreon exclusive. Um, it's just the beginning of that episode. And I, I posted that for everyone to hear. So um, anyway, we kind of touched a little bit on Brian Koberger, who he is. But there is this Facebook group. So we talked about the survey that he, he posted on Reddit where he was trying mm-hmm. to get people to fill out this survey if they had committed crimes and talk about like how they felt before, during, and after they committed these crimes. It was, it was kind of bizarre, but I guess within the, the scope of his studying, I guess, because he was studying criminology. Mm-hmm. However, now we have these screenshots, and these have since been deleted, and the, the account on Facebook has been deactivated. And there have been some fake duplicate accounts, people creating new accounts with the same profile picture and the same name. Why the hell do people do that kind of stuff? I don't stuff? know. I can't like you're so sometimes. so starving for attention that you're gonna go 
Like catfish, seriously? Well, and you know what irritates me too is that then they went on Instagram and created fake Brian uh, Koberger Instagram accounts and went and followed the victims. But even more than that, people were believing that these were real accounts. So then you have like not only a mis a spreading of misinformation, but there's people out there who really believe it. That's crazy. So, okay, some of these posts. So one of the questions in the survey was, why did you choose that victim or target over others? And then this account on Facebook that goes by the name Papa Roger posted in the University of Idaho Murders case, dis- case discussion group on December 8th, okay? December 8th, long before Brian Koberger was on anyone's radar, um, at least our radar, but... This post says, why did the killer choose that house over all the others in the area? And then another question from the same day, another post, says, what do we think is the entrance point to the crime scene? Now, again, this this compares to the question on the survey, why did you choose that victim or target over others? Another post says... One knife and four people. The killer took a big risk. The knife could have easily broken off or become ineffective after one or two murders. Are we sure there is only one knife involved? And then it's compared to a question on the survey. How did you accomplish your goal? Please explain what you were thinking and feeling. So freaking creepy. I just pulled up the picture and I'm looking at him as you say these. And I'm just picturing this freaking gross, horrible human. Mm Mm-hmm. They're spending their life committing a murder and then going and, like, poking the bear in the group, creating this persona. Like, what a fucking weirdo. It's it's very weird. Okay, so let me just put a quick disclaimer, too. Even if the Papa Roger account was not um, used by Brian... It's still weird. Yes. It's still odd behavior that deserves looking into. And I don't know if somebody was doing this just to, like create more hysteria but the odds that this these posts were made on you know december 8th this one was made on december 11th when did the attack happen the attacks happened november 13th he wasn't arrested until like new year's so i mean there were weeks that went by somebody was posting these groups that eerily that are eerily similar to that survey but nobody had access to that survey nobody would have known to look at that survey it kind of reminds me of the the btk one where this guy kept needing to kind of be in the spotlight when the attention was fading away from him Mm -hmm. so there's like this weird psychological thing and then also the profile picture it does look like him from the side as an avatar thing yeah do you think it's him no so do you think the whole account's him i am confident that he was the one making those posts. And listen, you know, I don't usually talk about speculation or just guessing. I don't really talk about like conspiracies or anything like that. But this is just too weird for me. The, the questions are way too similar to the survey that he wrote, that he wrote with two other teachers and published. Mm-hmm. He's behind that. And then he happens to also be the suspect in these posts so eerily are similar to that survey. It's just, it's too much for me. Okay, I have one last question, then I'm going to shut up and let you talk. Because you're probably going to answer this later. Do we know yet how he was related to these people? Like, I know there's the rumors, but he's all the way across the freaking country. So in my head, I'm just like, this is so random. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we will touch on that. Okay. But just 
just to remind you, he was a student at Washington State University, which is only about 10 minutes away from the University of Idaho. They wow. both kind of are towns that hug that border. Okay. So they're very close. And his family lives in Pennsylvania. I forgot he was the student at the Washington. So yes. I, I was thinking, what the hell? He's all the way across, but I forgot that. Yeah. So um, another post on the Facebook group was, do we think the killer took anything from the house? That was made on December 11th. And then on the same day, the question is, how long do we think the killer was in the house? So these compared to the survey questions that are, before leaving, is there anything else you did? How did you leave the scene? So another post, this was made on December 21st. Regardless of what has been released, I believe this is a sexually motivated crime. And then in the survey, it says, why did you choose that victim or target over others? Um, Again, December 20th, did the killer walk, drive, or some combination of both to the scene? Another question in the survey is, how did you travel to and enter the location that the crime occurred? What the heck? It's way too similar. It's very similar. It's very weird. Mm -hmm. So another post, this was made on November 30th, okay? Of the evidence released, the murder weapon has been consistent as a large a large fixed blade knife. This leads me to believe they found the sheath. This evidence was released prior to autopsies. I had never heard anything about a sheath being found at the scene. All I had ever heard was that they believed the weapon used was like a K-bar knife. At that point, that's all you heard. Have you now since heard that there was a sheath? In the affidavit that just came out this morning. No way. Yes. Does the affidavit mention this profile? No. But it does mention the Reddit post where he was trying to get people to answer this survey. So then he starts going back. Okay, so we're going to talk about the Facebook interaction. He starts going back and forth with the guy named Dustin on uh, this post, okay? And Dustin comments, fixed blade means that It's not a folding knife. The way I'm guessing they could tell was by impressions or bruising around the stab wounds that showed the outline of a guard on the knife. And he includes a picture of a knife pointing to the guard that he assumes might have left some bruising, and maybe that's how they knew that was the weapon. Papa Roger comments back saying, you wouldn't be able to tell that at the crime scene. And then Dustin says, I disagree. If the stabbing motions were hard, the guard would have left a mark. I see where he's going with that. Mm-hmm. I, that makes sense. And to then, give you a visual, it's like the hand guard between the blade so your mm-hmm. hand doesn't slide onto the knife. Yeah, yeah. And then Papa Roger um, responds saying, they don't clean bodies at a crime scene. The amount of blood must have been tremendous, which we know it was because, first of all, stabbing deaths are very bloody. But there's also pictures from the outside of the house of blood seeping through one of the bedrooms onto the outside foundation of the house. I can't even imagine what it must have looked like inside. So then Dustin says, due to the number of victims and assuming each victim was stabbed multiple times, I'm sure that there was visible evidence of a guard. For all we know, the investigators on the scene wiped a couple stab wounds clean to look for bruising. I think it's far more logical than finding a sheath. Sheaths are usually attached to a belt. And then Papa Roger says, but the police were very specific about the type of knife used. Um, then Dustin says, who knows? Finding a left behind sheath seems like a stretch though. And then Papa Roger says, why? They are very specific about the weapon, but very vague about every other detail. 
And Dustin says, Papa Roger, I think it's more likely that they did closer examination on the wounds and seen on scene than you think. They can analyze depth of the wound with serrated edge would be a big clue. I'm sure they have access to a database that would show knives that match those dimensions. Plus, I've never seen a folding knife that has a serrated edge. He's way too into this. Papa Roger says they are looking for a very specific knife. Curious, why are you debating the sheath theory so hard? And Dustin says, because who would carry a sheath? And Papa Roger says, who would carry a large exposed knife? Dustin says, sheaths are meant for belts. I would guess he carried it in his hand from wherever, from wherever it is he came from. A knife in a sheath could cause him problems. Papa Roger says, which hand? That is so creepy. Yeah, that whole thing's weird. He's, he's way too into it to not, to not be, what's his name, Brian? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dustin says, I don't freaking know. Why would you even ask that? Papa Roger responds, so a knife-wielding person walked from where and entered this house at what point with a large knife in hand? So Dustin responds, how in the hell would I know that? I'm sorry nobody is buying this sheath theory of yours. If we find out one day I'm wrong, I will gladly eat crow. That's what Dustin says. And then Papa Roger says, do you carry a knife? Like he's still going at it with this guy. Dustin says, dude, give it a rest. You sound like a psycho. Papa Roger says, remember, I made the original post and you have gone down this path. So they go back and forth and it's interesting because Dustin and some of the other people are like, this guy is kind of creepy. And they had no idea that at the time they could have truly been interacting with the guy responsible for this crime. Mm -hmm. And that is kind of jarring. Mm Mm-hmm. So December 15th, another post was made on Facebook that says the date of the killing was chosen on purpose. Thoughts? Like asking what the thoughts were on that. Um, Did people respond to it? There was only one comment, but I can't see what it was because this was just a screenshot of... And his post, his profile's deleted. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm just grateful that I was even able to snag these screenshots at all because now you can't find any of his posts whatsoever. So then he posted again, December 10th. And these are kind of like jumbled. Okay, we're kind of bouncing back and forth. But um, that's just the order of these, these posts on this screenshot. But he posted on December 10th, four weeks in and no suspects. What is the motive? Question mark. He also says on December 11th, how, do we, how long do we think the killer was in the house? Was he still re-sparking it with like every day that passes? He wants people to talk about it. Mm-hmm. So another post that he made was, how did the killer leave the scene? Did he clean up at all? And some of the questions on this survey that he created was, how did you leave the scene? Question mark. Before leaving, is there anything else you did? So, I mean. I'm over the Facebook, dude. Yeah. They're obviously, I just think it is way too, um, way too coincidental. I mean, he goes on and on over like into the 21st even. I mean, and at one point my favorite is when he says, I feel like the white car isn't relevant. So on December 5th or 6th, police came out and said that they were looking for a white Hyundai Elantra years like 2011 to 2013. And two days later he posts, I feel like the white car isn't relevant. (laughs) Of course you do. Possibly Brian. Of course you do, because that's the kind of car you drive. Mm -hmm. So on December 15th, Brian's dad flew from Pennsylvania to Idaho to make the drive back to Pennsylvania with Brian for the holidays. 
While they were on this 2,500-mile journey, they were pulled over twice in Indiana, once for speeding and then a second time for following too closely. And these stops were made within 10 minutes, with, within 10 minutes of each other. And the body cam footage is interesting. So the first stop... You can see very clearly Brian and his dad in the front seat. You can see Brian's hands kind of resting on his legs. You don't see any kind of obvious wounds to his hands or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And then the second stop, you briefly see them for a split second, but then the rest of the footage is literally of the side of his car. So it wasn't very good quality footage. And you can barely hear what they're saying because they're pulled over on the highway. So there have been reports that Indiana State Police were actually instructed by the FBI to stop Brian Koberger on his drive from Pullman, Washington to Scranton, Pennsylvania, in order to get body cam film or footage of his hands. But his hands were not filmed properly during the first stop, so they pulled him over again nine minutes later. That was a report that I saw. But then later I saw reports where FBI denies ever asking Indiana State Police to pull them over. And the reason I believe that is because that would be kind of backwards. The first video, you can see the first stop, you can see his hands on his legs and you don't see anything on his hands, but like you see his hands on his legs. And then the second stop, if it were true that they were trying to get this good footage, the second stop was way worse. You can barely see him, and then all you see is the side of his car. So I don't know. I don't necessarily believe that theory, um, but it was reported multiple times. People assumed, I guess, that FBI was involved, and they were tracking him all the way from Washington to Pennsylvania and asked to get some body, body cam footage of him. What was the significance of seeing his hands? Because if he was responsible for stabbing these kids, he would have injuries on his hands. Because often when you stab somebody, it creates a slippery scene, and it's not uncommon for a hand to slip off a knife and cut yourself. Okay. Makes sense. So fast forward to December 30th. Brian Koberger is arrested at his parents' home in Monroe County, Pennsylvania, at like 3 in the morning. This has been an insane week. I mean, first that, you know, we hear that he is arrested. January 3rd, Brian makes a quick appearance in front of a judge in Pennsylvania to waive his right to an extradition hearing, which we may or may not have discussed this in the last episode. I can't remember. But by waiving his right to an extradition hearing, he's basically saying, we don't have to do this whole extradition thing. I am willing to go. I'm not going to fight it. So we don't need to have a hearing. Just take me. I'm willing to go. So while in the courtroom, he acknowledges his parents and his two sisters. He reportedly mouthed, I love you to them. During this hearing, it was also announced that he would be extradited back to Idaho within 10 days. And it was made clear that those arrangements wouldn't be made or yeah, they wouldn't be made public for safety or security reasons. But literally at 6 a.m. the very next day, Brian was on a plane back to Idaho And he was actually flown on a small private plane and escorted by multiple guards. And when he landed in Idaho, law enforcement was waiting on the tarmac and they escorted him to the Lata County Jail. I've heard it pronounced Lata and Lata. Don't come for me. I don't know. It's L-A-T-A-H County Jail. Doesn't matter. People on TikTok are just ruthless. I'm learning. But y'all are, y'all are so kind to me. So It doesn't even matter. (laughs) What movie is that from? It's not from a movie. It's. It's from stand-up comedy. Oh, that's Chris D'Elia. You should YouTube that. Anyways, onward. Okay. So 
This morning, he had his first hearing in front of Magistrate Judge Megan Marshall, where he was formally read the charges against him. Kaylee's family was among some of the members in the courtroom sitting in the front row, and as Judge Marshall read the names of the victims, she read each count, including their names, there was visible crying. Even as I listened to it, so this was recorded, this whole hearing was recorded and then posted after. They don't have live feeds in the courtroom, but they are allowed to record and then post after. So, oh my gosh, I got like full body chills as I was listening to her read the counts and the names because I think it's often forgotten while we do these these stories on the podcast or while I'm making, you know, these videos for social media in regards to these cases. It's easily lost that like there real are people. real people mm-hmm. involved in this that are suffering. Very, I mean, it's not lost. I don't want to say that because that they are the reason I even do this. Like, they're the reason I'm even interested in this. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, I almost become desensitized because I'm talking about it so much. But then I hear the names and I'm like, Jesus, like these kids had a whole future, a whole life. And it was just taken from them. And especially you're desensitized because you talk about it, but I feel like almost like as an entire world we are because Mm -hmm. you constantly hear about bad things that happen. And so you're like, oh my gosh, these people were stabbed. And it's like, you know, this sounds so terrible, but it's almost like cooler talk in Mm -hmm. an office. Do you know what I mean? Right. Because it's not so close to home. Mm -hmm. I think when it's not close to home, you kind of think, oh, that doesn't happen to my town. That doesn't happen near me. Right. But you know, we're, we're far enough away from it that like, I think it's easier to forget sometimes that there are like some people really struggling with this. After Mm -hmm. I read the affidavit, I think it just kind of freshened that, that emotion in me. Cause like, obviously I'm talking about it constantly and I'm just trying to get the facts out as I'm talking about it. So I'm not thinking so much about the emotions sometimes. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that like I'm, you know, insensitive. I don't believe I'm an insensitive person, but I don't know. I mean, just hearing the names, I was like, gosh, I almost wanted to cry. I just. Well, then if you add on top of it, you hear the tears. It's like gut wrenching. Yeah. I just feel so bad for them. So you can hear them crying in the background. So you can hear sniffles. You can hear crying. um, And it was actually a really quick hearing. And then he was escorted back to the jail. And his next hearing is going to be next Thursday, which is when he will enter a plea. So we're expecting that he's going to enter a plea of not guilty. And then there will be a jury trial. When that takes place is, uh, who knows? It could happen later this year. It could happen next year. I mean, these things can really take a long time. Mm -hmm. So after this hearing took place, the arrest affidavit was finally released. And to my, and I'm sure many others, shock, it wasn't heavily redacted. And it was very detailed. And it's given us insight on the timeline and some of the evidence that connected police to Brian Koberger. So here's what I've learned. I'm going to give this quick summarized version, but if you want the full version, stay to the end. I'll read the whole thing word for word after we discuss this. So upon arrival, police entered through the first floor entrance of the house. Officers walked upstairs and to Zana's room, which was on the second floor. And that is where they found Zana. Ethan was in the room with her. And then the second page was completely redacted. The second page of the affidavit was completely redacted. So officers went into the third floor and they entered Kaylee's room. 
Originally, Kaylee's dog was in Kaylee's room when Moscow police officers initially responded. Then they entered Maddie's room, which was right across from Kaylee's, and that is where they found Maddie and Kaylee. They were laying in the same bed. They found a tan leather knife sheath laying on the bed next to Maddie's right side. No way. The sheath had, quote, K-Bar and then USMC for U.S. Marine Corps, and then, of course, their insignia stamped on the outside of it. So the Idaho State Lab later located a single source of male DNA left on the button snap of the knife sheath. Okay? So Zana ordered DoorDash that night, and it was delivered at about 4 a.m. That is something we never heard before. And it was delivered, so she was awake at that time. Zana was awake. Then one of the surviving roommates on the, on the second floor, the same floor as Zana, stated that she was woken up at about 4 a.m. by what she said sounded like Kaylee playing with her dog in one of the upstairs rooms. But then she heard what she thought was Kaylee say, there's someone here. But this could have also been Zana because Zana's phone indicated that she was awake and using TikTok at 4.12 a.m. The surviving roommate looked out her bedroom door but didn't see anything. Then she opened it again and she heard what she thought was crying coming from Zana's room and a male voice say something to the effect of, quote, it's okay, I'm going to help you, end quote. Creepy. At 4.17 a.m., a nearby security camera picked up distorted audio of what sounded like voices or a whimper, followed by a loud thud and then barking. And this camera was less than 50 feet outside from the west wall of Zana's room. This surviving roommate opened her door again and this time saw a figure clad in black and a mask that covered the person's mouth and nose walking towards her. She said he was 5'10 or taller, male, not very muscular, but athletically built and with bushy eyebrows. He walked past her as she stood frozen in fear. What? She locked herself in her room and then he left out the sliding glass doors. This is the first time we've ever heard that one of their surviving roommates was actually awake. Oh my gosh, I just got the goosebumps like crazy. She just, I'm, can you imagine? No. Like she would just, yeah, freeze. Yes. So a lot of people are asking, why didn't she just call 911 right then? Well, that's a stupid question. People I, are really asking that? I think it is so insensitive. Why wouldn't she really call 911 do. right then? Think about this, okay? I know the, I'm not the only person on the planet that's had this happen. You're asleep. You're having a dream. Like this happened. This, I, this, I recall this very clearly, okay? You're asleep. You're having a nightmare. Have you ever had a nightmare where, like, somebody's holding you down or something? Like, I, I know I've had this nightmare before where, like, it feels like somebody's, like, holding my shoulders down. And I'll wake up, and my shoulders actually feel like they're hot because your mind can have that much control. And I've frozen before. Mm-hmm. Like, have you, like, do you know what I mean? Have you ever woken up in the middle of the night in a nightmare or you thought you heard something? And, like, your first reaction, you can't even figure out what to do. You just freeze. Well, and not only that, but have you ever been a 20-year-old girl living in a house with oh her roommates God. and see a masked man walking through your hallways? Well, that's my point. I'm a freaking 30-year-old guy that wakes up from a dr- nightmare and could be frozen. Mm-hmm. This person's living a freaking nightmare, yeah. and she's a 20-year-old girl. Yeah, I don't—like, I don't ex- when you're saying that, it doesn't cross my mind to— 
why doesn't she call 911? To me, it crosses my mind of like, you know, people say fight or flight. Yeah. Either, okay, I don't expect her to fight him, okay? I expect her to flight, which Mm -hmm. is run. Mm -hmm. And the other one people don't talk about a lot is freeze. Mm -hmm. The whole saying is about fight, flight, freeze. And that that gets lost. But it's Mm -hmm. like... What do you? Ex- I don't know. I just. I don't expect her to do anything different when you're telling no. me that. Oh my god! It makes. And we're hearing it thirty some days later as a story being told to us. Imagine living it. Mm-hmm. Exactly, Austin. Man, I'm so glad that you said that because when I, when I read that, my heart just like broke for her. Because I cannot. I cannot imagine how scary that had to be, like being in this house and then the next morning finding all of your roommates gone. So, so did you, yeah, it's un, that's scary. I, I can't even, you can't even, like, like we can't even as humans fathom what no. that's like. Unless you've been in a face-to-face combat, then you don't know what it's like. Like, and I mean combat is with an unknown person killer. Like, this is just. No, you do not know what you would do in a situation like that. And I can't help but think that. That girl feels terribly guilty already. Mm-hmm. And now the internet, if you're saying, you're acting like this is a prominent thing. Mm-hmm. of people saying this, then she's probably like torn up. Haven't they been through enough? The roommates have already been blamed. Like before there was ever a Brian Koberger, there was, you know, the food truck guy, a professor at the the school, the roommates, a boyfriend, an ex-boyfriend. You know, everyone was pointing their fingers at whoever they thought it was. Have we not learned by now to just keep our mouths shut and like listen to what we know and mm-hmm. and be okay except what we don't know because what we don't know is what this girl's been through and what she continues to go through every single day yeah so so sorry i'm not trying to like move on but i'm mm-hmm. just curious so she freezes obviously mm-hmm. yeah. he leaves she closes her door then what happens does she so he leaves and then the the 911 call wasn't made until 11 a.m and we don't know what happened between then it's not included in the affidavit and there is a lot that's probably not included in this affidavit because all they had to do was include things that led them to believe Brian Koberger is the suspect, that he is most likely the one responsible. So there will be a lot more that comes out when the trial comes. Yeah, so it sounds way too early to judge that girl. Mm-hmm. Like, first of all, okay, if a call wasn't made till 11 a.m., I didn't know that piece. Mm-hmm. I get where somebody could just hear 4 a.m. She saw it. Why, why didn't she not call? Mm-hmm. If there's a lot we don't know, though, then there's a lot we don't know. Exactly. But, I mean, I don't... I guess I'm thinking in my head, and I don't know... I'm not very medically knowledgeable. But could she have, like, passed out and then literally, like, fallen asleep? Exactly. I mean, so there was a call at 11 a.m. for an unconscious person. How we don't know who the unconscious person was. It could have been her. Exactly. That's what I'm trying to say. Is like there is too much that we don't know for us to point any fingers at anyone else other than Brian Koberger at this point. Okay. See, this is. I saw one post. I tried not to. So when you posted this, I didn't look at it because I want to go into this unknown, right? And so, but I saw one comment on the post, and it was somebody saying like, "What about the roommate? How could they not call?" And so this makes a lot more sense now. And it's like... Like why people are asking because yeah. it, there was this gap in time. But yeah, but you don't know shit because you can't exactly. see mu- much of the affidavit. Okay, so continuing with the arrest affidavit, a video canvas was then conducted, collecting video surveillance from the surrounding area with the, the intent to capture footage of a potential suspect or vehicle. After reviewing footage, they noticed the white Hyundai Elantra multiple times in various videos. 
First, it was observed about four minutes away from the house at about 3.26 a.m. and again at 3.28 a.m. Multiple sightings of the vehicle were actually in the neighborhood of 1122 King Road, which is the kid's house, between 3.29 and 4.20. It passed the house at least three times. It was seen entering the area a fourth time at 4.04 a.m. Then the car stopped in front of the house and tried to either park or turn around in the middle of the road, but failed because maybe the road was too narrow. So the driver of the vehicle drove further down the road to a little intersection to complete a three-point turn. Then the vehicle is seen at 4.20 a.m., departing the area of the King Road residence at a high rate of speed, and then it's also captured multiple times as he entered Pullman, Washington, which is where he was living. So on November 25th, Moscow police asked area law enforcement to be on the lookout for a white Hyundai Elantra. And on November 29th, Washington State University police officer Daniel Tiango queried white Elantras registered at WSU, and one came back as a 2015 white Elantra with Pennsylvania plates registered to Brian Koberger. So police ran his information and reviewed his driver's license and photograph, noting the similarities between his picture and the description given by that surviving roommate. They checked his record and noticed that in August of last year, he was pulled over and they reviewed the body cam footage from that traffic stop. In that stop, Brian gave police his phone number. So they took that phone number and obtained a search warrant to analyze cell phone data in the area and his phone was not in the area of that house between 3 and 5 a.m., but honestly, with his background in criminology, I would have been more surprised if he was dumb enough to have his phone with him while he committed this crime. Mm-hmm, that makes sense. However, it did ping as he left his residence and headed towards the King Road residence at 2.47 a.m., and then the phone just stopped working or stopped reporting to cell towers, meaning it was either turned off or put on airplane mode. And then it doesn't ping again until 4.48 a.m. Between 4.50 and 5.26 a.m., the phone pings are consistent with the traveling made by the white Hyundai Elantra as it entered back into Pullman after the murders took place. So he had his phone with him, but turned it off or at least put it in airplane mode. And my first thought was, you know, with someone with such an extensive background in criminology and criminal justice, you'd have to be really dumb to like plan this whole crime and then bring your phone with you. And take your own vehicle. That too. I mean, I guess renting a vehicle. I don't know. It's just interesting. But then I saw this professor point out who has a TikTok, and this was a really good point. He said the reason he probably brought his phone with him is because to take pictures. A lot of times these serial killers or just evil monster people will commit a crime like this and then take pictures for like a souvenir, like a trophy of what they've done. So it would make sense that he took his phone with him but put it on airplane mode and then committed the crime. for something weird, yeah. Mm -hmm. But if that is the case, they're going to do forensics on the phone and even if he tried to delete them, they'll probably be able to find them. So furthermore, they found an essay that Brian wrote when he applied to work for the Pullman Police Department in the fall of 2022, shortly before the murders took place. In this essay, he wrote that he had interest 
in assisting rural law enforcement agencies with how to better collect and analyze technological data in public safety operations. This is just, it's <laughs> killing me. This, the irony is just baffling. So then police also conducted a sweep on his phone records to determine if he stalked any of the victims prior to this crime taking place. They found that his phone pinged in the same area as the 1122 King Road residence at least 12 times between June of 22 when he got that phone and then November 13th of 2022. Freaking weird is that. All of those occasions, except for one, occurred in either the late evening or early morning hours. On one of the occasions, August 21st of 2022, his phone pinged by the house from 1034 to 11.35 p.m., so an entire hour. And I also want to point out, I Googled what the typical radius is of a cell tower. Because I'm like, okay, well, if it's if it pinged in the curious. area... I was just curious. I was about to ask you this. If it pinged in the area, how close would that mean he had to be? Because, I mean, could he just say, oh, I was in the area because I like this other restaurant that's nearby or mm-hmm. something like that? The typical coverage radius of a cell tower is only one to three miles. And in dense urban environments, a cell tower usually reaches a quarter of a mile to a mile before handing off a user's connection to another nearby cell site. So this has to put him within a mile, one to three miles of their home. So then finally on this, but hold on, (laughs) because if he's from Pullman, Washington, he's going to have to have a really good reason as to why his phone pings so often at this residence. How far is it again? It's about 10 minutes, but it's a completely different university. Mm-hmm. And he's living in Pullman, Washington. This is the University of Idaho. He has to cross the state border to get there. I mean, not saying that it's impossible, but like, Strange. I want to know the reason. What, what reason is he going to come up with to say why he pinged in that area so, so often? Mm-hmm. So finally, on December 27th, agents in Pennsylvania recovered trash from the Koberger family residence. And that was sent to the Idaho State Lab for testing. The next day, the lab reported that a DNA profile obtained from the trash and the DNA profile obtained from the sheath identified a male as not to be excluded as the biological father of the suspect profile. So this trash contained Brian's dad's DNA, and that is how they were able to link the DNA on the trash to the DNA on the sheath as a familial match. Holy shit. So we've heard a lot that, you know, there were reports that it was DNA that connected him, and they said there was a a familial genealogical link, and I assumed it was probably from, like, a database where there's a lot of, you know, familial DNA, something similar to, like, 23andMe or Ancestry, because that is common. Crimes have been solved with that in the past, Mm -hmm. but to hear that it was actually done this way is just even cooler, in my opinion, because this whole time he probably thought... He was getting away with it, had no idea. They were so on to him. They pulled trash from his home. I was just going to say, I, 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 sorry, I was just going to mm-hmm. say, how remarkable is it that they, that he was pulled over, one, on the way home, which whether the FBI called that in or not, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. But then somebody thought to, like the, the FBI, whatever, they thought to pull trash out of his parents, ship it back to Idaho mm-hmm. so they could... Do the research. That's insane. It happened in the course of one day. That's one day. Insane. 
I mean, obviously, to get the DNA profile in the first place from the sheath probably took much longer. But then to get this match, the fact that it took one day is just so remarkable. If this doesn't mm -hmm. instill some faith in you that law enforcement and the FBI know what the hell they're doing, stop questioning them, stop thinking you can do a better job than them while you're scrolling on TikTok and making videos or posts or whatever – they know what they're doing. They have at their hands, at their disposal, resources we'll never be privy to using. Mm -hmm. That gets lost on people a lot. So I love this because this is this reminds me of past cases where like it's often done in interrogations where they have a suspect in the room, they'll offer them a drink. Can I get you a cup of water? And then they'll drink from the water and leave the cup and then they get the DNA off the cup. No way. Like th they do this. This is what they do. That's it's crazy. incredible. But it also goes to show that he had he had uh, the frame of mind to try and conceal it because while he was in Pennsylvania, it's been reported that he would go to the grocery store and have gloves on his hand the whole time so as not to like leave oh, any I'm... fingerprints or contact DNA possibly. I mean, that's an assumption, but... It's like he knew that they were onto him though. Yeah. But then with all the Papa Roger stuff, if that is him, which I think it is too now, that would lead you to believe that... Like, he wanted him to be on to them. I don't know. He's a sick, sick person. It's impossible for us as rational humans to sympathize or empathize with the mind of a serial killer mm -hmm. because we don't operate that way. But to think that some of them do, that, do this just for the notoriety, it's something we'll never be able to understand. So, mm -hmm. all right. Do you have any, anything else you want to add? I don't think so. We'll probably have multiple updates on this, huh? Yeah, we'll definitely have more updates as the case goes on. Um, however, there has been a gag order that's been placed on um, this case. So this will prevent, this gag order prevents anyone in relation to the case. So police officers, investigators, witnesses, defendants or um, plaintiffs on either side, their lawyers on either side, nobody is allowed to talk about this case with media. So there's going to be no press conferences, no more interviews, nothing. So we honestly so might Mama not... So Mama Mystery is it. We, we honestly might not get a lot um, until the trial starts. However, that's not to say nothing can be said. I mean, media can still talk about what goes on in the courtrooms and any of the proceedings. Um, you know, we'll just kind of see what happens. But as far as like any press conferences, don't expect to see any of those. I'll tell you this. When the trial starts, you just follow Kelly. Thanks, babe. Because she'll be like on it, like shit on I'll stink. I'll just be like on it, Like guys. stink on shit. Like that. <laughs> All right, so now... You're going to stick around and read the affidavit. I'm out. I've yeah. learned enough. Mama, mystery, out. <laughs> All right. So for those of you who have stuck around, this is a 19-page affidavit, so it's going to take me a minute to get through it, but here we go. The below information is provided by Brett Payne, who is duly appointed, qualified, and acting peace officer within the county of Lata, state of Idaho. Brett Payne is employed by Moscow Police Department in the official capacity or position of corporal and has been a trained and qualified peace officer for approximately four years. Corporal Payne is being assisted by members of the Idaho State Police and agents of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. On November 13th of 2022, at approximately 4 p.m., Moscow Police Department Sergeant Blaker and I responded to 1122 King Road, Moscow, Idaho, hereafter referred the King Road residence. 
to assist with scene security and processing of a crime scene associated with four homicides. Upon her arrival, the Idaho State Police forensic team was on scene and was preparing to begin processing the scene. MPD officer Smith, one of the initial responding officers to the incident, advised he would walk me through the scene. Officer Smith and I entered the King Road residence through the bottom floor door on the north side of the building. Officer Smith and I then walked upstairs to the second floor. Officer Smith directed me down the hallway to the west bedroom on the second floor, which I later learned through Zana's driver's license and other personal belongings found in the room, was Zana Kernodal's room. Just before this room, there was a bathroom door on the south wall of the hallway. As I approached the room, I could see a body later identified as Zana Kernodal's laying on the floor. Kernodal was deceased with wounds which appeared to have been caused by an edged weapon. Also in the room was a male later identified as Ethan Chapin, hereafter Chapin. Chapin was also deceased with wounds later determined, autopsy report provided by Spokane, and then it's redacted. The second page is completely redacted. I then followed Officer Smith upstairs to the third floor of the residence. The third floor consisted of two bedrooms and one bathroom. The bedroom on the west side of the floor was later determined to be Kaylee Gonzalez, hereafter Gonzalez's room. I later learned from a review of Officer Nunez's body camera, there was a dog in the room where Moscow police officers initially responded. The dog belonged to Gonzalez and her ex-boyfriend, Jack Dukauer. I found out from my interview with Jack Dukauer on November 13, 2022, that he and Gonzalez shared the dog. Officer Smith then pointed out a small bathroom on the east side of the third floor. This bathroom shared a wall with Madison Mogan, hereafter Mogan, bedroom, which was situated on the southeast corner of the third floor. As I entered this bedroom, I could see two females in the single bed in the room. Both Gonsalves and Mogan were deceased with visible stab wounds. I also later noticed what appeared to be a tan leather knife sheath laying on the bed next to Mogan's right side when viewed from the door. The sheath was later processed and had K-Bar, USMC, and the United States Marine Corps Eagle Globe and Anchor insignia stamped on the outside of it. The Idaho State Lab later located a single source of male DNA the suspect profile, left on the button snap of the knife sheath. As part of the investigation, numerous interviews were conducted by Moscow Police Department officers, Idaho State police detectives, and FBI agents. Two of the interviews included BF and DM, so those are the initials, and I'm not going to say their names. This is just a side note. Both BF and DM were inside the King Road residence at the time of the homicides and were roommates to the victims. BF's room was located on the east side of the first floor of the King Road residence. Based on numerous interviews conducted by Moscow Police Department officers, Idaho State Police detectives and FBI agents, as well as my review of evidence, I have learned the following. On the evening of November 12, 2022, Chapin and Kernodal are seen by BF 
at the Sigma Chi House on the University of Idaho campus at 735 Nez Perce Drive from approximately 9 p.m. on November 12th to 1.45 a.m. on November 13th. BF also estimated that at approximately 1.45 a.m., Chapin and Kernodal returned to the King Road residence. BF also stated that Chapin did not live in the King Road residence, but was a guest of Kernodal. Gonsalves and Mogan were at a local bar, the Corner Club, at 202 North Main Street in Moscow. Gonsalves and Mogan can be seen on video footage provided by the Corner Club between 10 p.m. on November 12th and 1.30 a.m. on November 13th. At approximately 1.30 a.m., Gonsalves and Mogan can be seen on a video at a local food vendor called The Grub Truck at 318 South Main Street in downtown Moscow. The Grub Truck live streams video from their food truck on the streaming platform Twitch, which is available for public viewing on their website. This video was captured by law enforcement. A private party reported that he provided a ride to Gonsalves and Mogan at approximately 1.56 a.m. from downtown Moscow in front of the grub truck to the King Road residence. DM and BF both made statements during interviews that indicated the occupants of the King Road residence were home by 2 a.m. and asleep or at least in their rooms by approximately 4 a.m. This is with the exception of Kernodal, who received a DoorDash order at the residence at approximately 4 a.m. Law enforcement identified the DoorDash delivery driver who reported this information. DM stated she originally went to sleep in her bedroom on the southeast side of the second floor. DM stated she was awoken at approximately 4 a.m. by by what she stated sounded like Gonzalez playing with her dog in one of the upstairs bedrooms, which were located on the third floor. A short time later, DM said she heard who she thought was Gonzalez say something to the effect of, there's someone here. A review of records obtained from a forensic download of Kernodal's phone showed this could have also been Kernodal, as her cell phone indicated she was likely awake and using the TikTok app at approximately 4.12 a.m. DM stated she looked out of her bedroom but did not see anything when she heard the comment about someone being in the house. DM stated she opened her door a second time when she heard what she thought was crying coming from Kernodal's room. DM then said she heard a male voice say something to the effect of, it's okay, I'm going to help you. At approximately 4.17 a.m., a security camera located at 1112 King Road, a residence immediately to the northwest of 1122 King Road, picked up distorted audio of what sounded like whimpers or voices followed by a loud thud. A dog can also be heard barking numerous times starting at 4.17 a.m. The security camera is less than 50 feet from the west wall of Kernodal's bedroom. DM stated she opened her door for the third time after she heard the crying and saw a figure clad in black clothing and a mask that covered the person's mouth and nose walking toward her. DM described the figure as 5'10 or taller, male, not very muscular, but athletically built with bushy eyebrows. The male walked past DM as she stood in a frozen shock phase. 
The male walked towards the, black the back sliding glass door. DM locked herself in her room after seeing the male. DM did not state that she recognized the male. This leads investigators to believe that the murderer left the scene. The combination of DM's statement to law enforcement, reviews of forensic downloads of records from BF and DM's phone, and video of a suspect video as described below leads investigators to believe the homicides occurred between 4 a.m. and 4.25 a.m. During the processing of the crime scene, investigators found a Latin shoe print. This was located during the second processing of the crime scene by the ISP forensic team by first using a presumptive blood test and then amino black, a protein stain that detects the presence of cellular material. The detected shoe print showed a diamond-shaped pattern similar to the pattern of a Vans-type shoe sole just outside the door of DM's bedroom located on the second floor. This is consistent with DM's statement regarding the suspect's path of travel. As part of the investigation, an extensive search commonly referred to in law enforcement as a video canvas was conducted in the area of the King Road residence. This video canvas was to obtain any footage from the early morning hours of November 13, 2022 in the area of the King Road residence and surrounding neighborhoods in an effort to locate the suspects or suspect vehicles traveling to or leaving from the King Road residence. This video canvas resulted in the collection of numerous surveillance videos in the area from both residential and business addresses. I have re reviewed numerous videos that were collected and have had conversations with the other MPD officers, ISP detectives, and FBI agents that are similarly reviewing footage that was obtained. A review of camera footage indicated that a white sedan hereafter suspect vehicle one was observed traveling westbound in the 700 block of Indian Hills Drive in Moscow at approximately 3.26 a.m. and westbound on Steiner Avenue at Idaho State Highway 95 in Moscow at approximately 3.28 a.m. On this video, it appeared suspect vehicle one was not displaying a front license plate. A review of footage from multiple videos obtained from the King Road neighborhood showed multiple sightings of suspect vehicle one starting at 3.29 a.m. and ending at 4.20 a.m. These sightings show suspect vehicle one makes an initial three passes by the 1122 King Road residence and then leave via Walenta Drive. Based off of my experience as a patrol officer, this is a residential neighborhood with a very limited number of vehicles that travel in the area during the early morning hours. Upon review of the video, there are only a few cars that enter and exit this area during this time. Suspect vehicle one can be seen entering the area a fourth time at approximately 4.04 a.m. It can be seen driving eastbound on King Road, stopping and turning around in front of 500 Queen Road number 52, and then driving back westbound on King Road. When suspect vehicle one is in front of the King Road residence, it appeared to unsuccessfully attempt to park or turn around in the road. The vehicle then continued to the intersection of Queen Road and King Road, where it can be seen completing a three-point turn and then driving eastbound again down Queen Road. 
Suspect Vehicle 1 is next seen departing the area of the King Road residence at approximately 4.20 a.m. at a high rate of speed. Suspect Vehicle 1 is next observed traveling southbound on Walenta Drive. Based on my knowledge of the area and review of camera footage in the neighborhood that does not show Suspect Vehicle 1 during that time frame, I believe that Suspect Vehicle 1 likely exited the neighborhood at Palos River Drive and Conestoga Drive. Palos River Drive is at the southern edge of Moscow and proceeds into Whitman County, Washington. Eventually, the road leads to Pullman, Washington. Pullman, Washington is approximately 10 miles from Moscow, Idaho. Both Pullman and Moscow are small college towns, and people commonly travel back and forth between them. Law enforcement officers provided video footage of suspect vehicle one to forensic examiners with the Federal Bureau of Investigation that regularly utilize surveillance footage to identify the year, make, and model of an unknown vehicle that is, that is observed by one or more cameras during the commission of a criminal offense. The forensic examiner has approximately 35 years law enforcement experience with 12 years at the FBI. His specific training includes identifying unique characteristics of vehicles, and he uses a database that gives visual clues of vehicles across states to identify differences between vehicles. After reviewing the numerous observations of suspect vehicle one, the forensic examiner initially believed that suspect vehicle one was a 2011 to 2013 Hyundai Elantra. Upon further review, he indicated it could also be a 2011 to 2016 Hyundai Elantra. As a result, investigators have been reviewing information on persons in possession of a vehicle that is a 2011 to 2016 white Hyundai Elantra. Investigators were given access to video footage on the Washington State University campus located in Pullman, Washington. A review of that video indicated that at approximately 2.44 a.m. on November 13, 2022, a white sedan, which was consistent with the description of the white Elantra known as Suspect Vehicle 1, was observed on WSU surveillance cameras traveling north on Southeast Nevada Street at Northeast Stadium Way. At approximately 2.53 a.m., a white sedan, which is consistent with the description of the white Elantra known as Suspect Vehicle 1, was observed traveling southeast on Nevada Street in Pullman, Washington, towards SR-270. SR-270 connects Pullman, Washington to Moscow, Idaho. This camera footage from Pullman, Washington was provided to the same FBI forensic examiner. The forensic examiner identified the vehicle observed in Pullman, Washington as being a 2014 to 2016 Hyundai Elantra. At approximately 5.25 a.m., a white sedan, which was consistent with the description of suspect vehicle one, was observed on five cameras in Pullman, Washington and on WSU campus cameras. The first camera that recorded the white sedan was located at 1300 Johnson Road in Pullman. The white sedan was observed traveling northbound on Johnson Road. Johnson Road leads directly back to West Palos River Drive in Moscow, which intersects with Conestoga Drive. The white sedan was then observed turning north on Bishop Boulevard and northwest on SR-270. 
At approximately 5.27 a.m., the white Elantra was observed on cameras traveling northbound on Stadium Way at Nevada Street, Stadium Way at Grimes Way, Stadium Drive at Wilson Road, and Stadium Way at Cougar Way. And then there is a map that shows the depiction showing Moscow and Pullman. It also includes arrows that show you his route of travel on this map. And I can include that in a post on our Instagram page if you want to see the map for yourself. On November 25th, 2022, MPD asked area law enforcement agencies to be on the lookout for white Hyundai Elantras in the area. On November 29th, 2022, at approximately 12.28 a.m., Washington State University police officer Daniel Tiango queried white Elantras registered at WSU. As a result of that query, he located a 2015 white Elantra with a Pennsylvania license plate LFZ8649. This vehicle was registered to Brian Koberger, hereafter Koberger residing at 1630 Northeast Valley Road, apartment 201, Pullman, Washington. 1630 Northeast Valley Road is approximately three quarters of a mile from the intersection of Stadium Way and Cougar Way, which was the last camera location that picked up the white Elantra. That same day at approximately 12.58 a.m., WSU officer Curtis Whiteman was looking for white Hyundai Elantras and located a 2015 white Hyundai Elantra at 1630 Northeast Valley Road in Pullman in the parking lot. 1630 Northeast Valley Road is an apartment complex that houses WSU students. Officer Whitman also ran the car and it returned to Coburger with a Washington tag. I reviewed Coburger's Washington State driver's license information and photograph. This license indicates that Koberger is a white male with a height of six feet and weighs 185 pounds. Additionally, the photograph of Koberger shows that he has bushy eyebrows. Koberger's physical description is consistent with the description of the male DM saw inside the King, residence, King Road residence on November 13th. Further investigation, including a review of the Lata County Sheriff's Deputy Corporal Duke's body cam and reports, showed that on August 21st, 2022, Brian Koberger was detained as part, of the, as part of a traffic stop that occurred in Moscow, Idaho by Corporal Duke. At the time, Koberger, who was the sole occupant, was driving a white 2015 Hyundai Elantra with Pennsylvania plate LFZ8649, which was set to expire on November 30th, 2022. Now, during the stop, which was recorded via a law enforcement body camera, Koberger provided his phone number as redacted, but the last four digits are 8458. Hereafter, the 8458 phone. Investigators conducted electronic database queries and learned that the 8458 phone number is a number used by AT&T. On October 14, 2022, Brian Koberger was detained as part of a traffic stop by a WSU police officer. Upon review of that body cam and report of the stop, Koberger was the sole occupant and was driving a white 2015 Hyundai Elantra with Pennsylvania plate LFZ. 8649. On November 18, 2022, according to WA State Licensing, Koberger registered the 2015 White Elantra with Washington and later received 
WA plate CFB8708. Prior to this time, the 2015 white Elantra was registered in Pennsylvania, which, was, which does not require a front license plate to be displayed. This was learned through communications with a Pennsylvania officer who is currently certified in the state of Pennsylvania. Based on my own experience and communication with Washington law enforcement, I know that Idaho and Washington require front and back license plates to be displayed. Investigators believe that Koberger is still driving the 2015 white Elantra because his vehicle was captured on December 13, 2022 by a license plate reader in Loma, Colorado. Information provided by a query to a database. Koberger's Elantra was then queried on December 15, 2022 by law enforcement in Hancock County, Indiana. On December 16, 2022, at approximately 2.26 p.m., surveillance video showed Koberger's Elantra in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania. The sole occupant of the vehicle was a white male whose description was consistent with Koberger. Koberger has family in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania, learned through a TLO search and locate tool database query. Based on information provided on the WSU website, Koberger is currently a PhD student in criminology at Washington State University. Pursuant to records provided by a member of the interview panel for Pullman Police Department, we learned that Koberger's past education included undergraduate degrees in psychology and cloud-based forensics. These records also showed Koberger wrote an essay when he applied for an internship with the Pullman Police Department in the fall of 2022. Koberger wrote in his essay, he had interests in assisting rural law enforcement agencies with how to better collect and analyze technological data in public safety operations. Koberger also posted a Reddit survey which can be found by an open source internet search. The survey asked for participants to provide information to, quote, understand how emotions and psychological traits influence decision-making when committing a crime, end quote. As part of this investigation, law enforcement obtained search warrants to determine cellular devices that utilized cellular towers in close proximity to the King Road residence on November 13, 2022, between 3 and 5 a.m., after determining that Koberger was associated to both the 2015 White Elantra and the 8458 phone, investigators reviewed the search warrant returns. A query of the 8458 phone in these returns did not show the 8458 phone utilizing cellular tower resources in close proximity to the King Road residence between 3 a.m. and 5 a.m., Based on my training, experience, and conversations with law enforcement officers that specialize in the utilization of cellular telephone records as part of investigations, individuals can either leave their cellular telephone at a different location before committing a crime or turn their cellular telephone off prior to going to a location to commit a crime. This is done by subjects in an effort to avoid alerting law enforcement that a cellular device associated with them was in a particular area where a crime is committed. I also know that on numerous occasions, subjects will surveil an area where they intend to commit a crime prior to the date of the crime. 
Depending on the circumstances, this could be done a few days before or for several months prior to the commission of a crime. During these types of surveillance, it is possible that an individual would not leave their cellular telephone at a separate location or turn it off since they do not plan to commit the offense on that particular day. On December 23, 2022, I applied for and was granted a search warrant for historical phone records between November 12, 2022 at 12 a.m. and November 14 at 12 a.m. for the 8458 phone held by the phone provider AT&T, approximately 24 hours preceding and following the times of the homicides. On December 23, 2022, pursuant to that search warrant, I received records for the 8458 phone from AT&T. These records indicated that the 8458 phone is subscribed to Brian Koberger at an address in Albrightsville, Albrightsville, Pennsylvania, and the account has been open since June 23, 2022. These records also included historical cell site information for the 8458 phone. After receiving this information, I consulted with an FBI special agent that is certified as a member of the Cellular Analysis Survey Team, otherwise known as CAST. Members of CAST are certified with the FBI to provide expert testimony in the field of historical CSLI and are required to pass extensive training that includes both written and practical examinations prior to being certified with CAST, as well as the completion of yearly certification requirements. Additionally, the FBI CAST special agent that I consulted with has over 15 years of federal law enforcement experience, which includes six years with the FBI. From information provided by CAST, I was able to determine estimated locations for the 8458 phone from November 12, 2022 to November 13, 2022, the time period authorized by the court. On November 13, 2022, at approximately 2.42 a.m., the 8458 phone was utilizing cellular resources that provide coverage to 1630 Northeast Valley Road, apartment 201 Pullman, Washington, hereafter referred to as the Coburger residence. At approximately 2.47 a.m., the 8458 phone utilized cellular resources that provide coverage southeast of the Coburger residence, consistent with the 8458 phone leaving the Coburger residence and traveling south through Pullman, Washington. This is consistent with the movement of the white Elantra. At approximately 2.47 a.m., the 8458 phone stops reporting to the network, which is consistent with either the phone being in an area without cellular coverage, the connection to the network is disabled, such as putting the phone in airplane mode, or that phone is turned off. The 8458 phone does not report to the network again until approximately 4.48 a.m., at which time it is utilized cellular resources that provide coverage to ID State Highway 95 south of Moscow ID, near Blaine ID, north of Genesee. Between 4.50 and 5.26 a.m., the phone utilizes cellular resources that are consistent with the 8458 phone traveling south on ID State Highway 95 to Genesee, then traveling west towards Uniontown, and then north back into Pullman, Washington. 
At approximately 5.30 a.m., the 8458 phone is utilizing resources that provide coverage to Pullman, Washington, and consistent with the phone traveling back to the Coburger residence. The 8458 phone's movements are consistent with the movements of the white Elantra that is that is observed traveling north on Stadium Drive at approximately 5.27 a.m. Based on a review of the 8458 phone's estimated locations and travel, the 8458 phone's travel is consistent with that of the white Elantra. Further review indicated that the 8458 phone utilized cellular resources on November 13, 2022 that are consistent with the 8458 phone leaving the area of Coburger residence at approximately 9 a.m. and traveling to Moscow ID. Specifically, the 8458 phone utilized cellular resources that would provide coverage to the King Road residents between 9.12 and 9.21 a.m. Side note, just in case you didn't catch that, he went back to the crime scene the day after he committed these crimes. The 8458 phone next utilized cellular resources that are consistent with the 8458 phone traveling back to the area of the Coburger residence and arriving to that area at approximately 9.32 a.m. Below is a depiction of the possible route taken based off of cellular site locations. So included is a map, and it shows how allegedly Coburger traveled in a essentially a big U-shaped. And I don't know if it was just to avoid the obvious like straight line of traveling from Pullman to Moscow, but instead he took this like really long way that is almost in the shape of a huge U just to avoid looking like he went straight to Moscow. So I'm going to continue. Investigators found that the 8458 phone did connect to a cell, cell phone tower that provides service to Moscow on November 14th, 2022, but investigators do not believe the 8458 phone was in Moscow on that date. The 8458 phone has not connected to any towers that provide service to Moscow since that date. Based on my training experience and the facts of the invest investigation thus far, I believe that Koberger, the user of the 8458 phone, was likely the driver of the white Elantra that is observed departing Pullman, Washington, and that this vehicle is like likely suspect vehicle one. Additionally, the route of travel of the 8458 phone during the early morning hours of November 13th, 2022, and the lack of the 8458 phone reporting to AT&T between 2.47 a.m. and 4.48 a.m. is consistent with Koberger attempting to conceal his location during the quadruple homicide that occurred at the King Road residence. On December 23rd, 2022, I was granted a search warrant for Koberger's historical CSLI from June 23rd, 2022 to current prospective location information and a pen register trap and trace on the 8458 phone to aid in efforts to determine if Koberger stalked any of the victims in this case prior to the offense, conducted surveillance on the King Road residence, was in contact with any of the victim's associates before or after the alleged offense, any locations that may contain evidence of the murders that occurred on November 13th, the location of the white Elantra registered to Koberger, as well as the location of Koberger. 
On December 23, 2022, pursuant to that search warrant, I received historical records for the 8458 phone from AT&T from the time the account was opened in June of 2022. After consulting with CAST special agent, I was able to determine estimated locations for the 8458 phone from June to present, this time period authorized by the court. The records for the 8458 phone show the 8458 phone utilizing cellular resources that provide coverage to the area of the 1122 King Road on at least 12 occasions prior to November 13, 2022. All of these occasions, except for one, occurred in the late evening and early morning hours of their respective days. One of these occasions on August 21st, 2022, the 8458 phone utilized cellular resources providing coverage to the King Road residents from approximately 10.34 p.m. to 11.35 p.m. At approximately 11.37 p.m., Koberger was stopped by Lata County Sheriff's Deputy Corporal Duke, as mentioned above. The 8458 phone was utilizing cellular resources consistent with the location of the traffic stop during this time at Farm Road and Pullman Highway. Further analysis of the cellular data provided showed the 8458 phone utilized cellular resources on November 13, 2022, consistent with the phone traveling from Pullman, Washington to Lewiston, Idaho via U.S. Highway 195. At approximately 12.36 p.m., the 8458 phone utilized cellular resources that would provide coverage to Kate's Cup of Joe coffee stand located at 810 Port Drive, Clarkston, Washington. Surveillance footage from the U.S. Chef's Store located at 820 Port Drive, Clarkston, Washington and adjacent to Kate's Cup of Joe showed a white Elantra consistent with the suspect vehicle one drive past Kate's Cup of Joe at a time consistent with the cellular data from the 8458 phone. At approximately 12.46 p.m., the 8458 phone then utilized cellular data in the area of Albertson's Grocery Store at 400 Bridge Street in Clarkston, Washington. Surveillance footage obtained from the Albertsons showed Koberger exit the white Elantra consistent with suspect vehicle one at approximately 12.49 p.m. Interior surveillance cameras showed Koberger walk through the store, purchase unknown items at the checkout, and leave at approximately 1.04 p.m. Koberger's possible path of travel is depicted below, and there's a map included. Additional analysis of records for the 8458 phone indicated that between approximately 5.32 p.m. and 5.36 p.m., the 8458 phone utilized cellular resources that provide coverage to Johnson, Idaho. The 8458 phone then stops reporting to the network from approximately 5.36 p.m. to 8.30 p.m., That is consistent with the 8458 phone being in the area that the 8458 phone traveled in the hours immediately following the suspected time the homicides occurred. On December 27, 2022, Pennsylvania agents recovered the trash from the Koberger family residence located in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania. That evidence was sent to the Idaho State Lab for testing. 
On December 28, 2022, the Idaho State Lab reported that a DNA profile obtained from the trash and the DNA profile obtained from the sheath identified a male as not being excluded as the biological father of suspect profile. At least 99.9998% of the male population would be expected to be excluded from the possibility of being the suspect's biological father. Based on the information above, I am requesting an arrest warrant be issued for Brian C. Koberger, date of birth 11-21-1994, for burglary at 1122 King Street in Moscow, Idaho, and four counts of murder in the first degree for the murders of Madison Mogan, Kaylee Gonsalves, Zana Kernodal, and Ethan Chapin. This concludes the reading of the arrest warrant issued for Brian C. Koberger. If you want to see this document for yourself, it is readily available online. You can go to coi.isc.idaho.gov and follow the links from there. It is one of the most common cases, so it's on one of their popular case like pages. Um, there's also links to Lori and Chad Daybell's, Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell's um, court documents, which we've covered them before too, but their trial is still ongoing. So lots of, lots of stuff happening in Idaho right now. And if you've made it this far, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for supporting Mama, Mis- Mama Mystery. I'm tired. I'm really tired. <laughs> Mama Mystery out. Bye.